Amen. Amen. Go and have a seat. God, we, uh, we thank you for the chance to be together. Uh, we thank you that we have not come together just to hear some motivational speech. And in no way have we been gathered to hear um, my words. So I pray that you, you grant me the help to deliver your word to your people. That as I've heard mentioned recently, it would sober the, the careless soul and sweeten the burdens of your saints where they exist this morning. I pray that for many of us that your word this morning would remind us of all the riches that we have in Jesus, and maybe for some in this room that it would, that your word as it goes forth would introduce them to Jesus for the first time. We thank you for life in your name. We thank you for the, for the hope that you offer that is beyond this life. It is for this life, but isn't bound up in this life. Um, it's a living hope for today and a, an eternal hope for tomorrow. We love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, y'all. I'm on the floor. I feel like a game show host a little bit. I'm kind of out of my comfort zone, but I didn't want to preach behind a retaining wall, so I figured I'd just come down on the floor instead. My name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here, and so good to be with you. Um, as I stand in front of this baptism, I'm going to step to the side just for a second. So um, as you look at this baptism over the years, we've got another one on the side, on the other side that we've started. Um, but if, if you look at this just for a second, um, every single person who wrote on this baptismal was baptized here. And every single person on there represents a story of God's grace. There's just and you can look at it later. Many of you are on here. How many of you are, have been baptized here at Crossway just by show of hands? Hey, you didn't raise your hands very high. Come on, y'all. There's a lot of people that are still here. You know, many that were single in college, much like Grace is. Grace is going to be baptized today. You'll get to hear her story in just a little bit. Um, but every single person on this board has encountered Jesus Christ and professed faith in him and there's a, there's a story of the grace of God that they have, they have personally, but they've also entered into that's the story of God's grace throughout all history as he takes broken and sinful people and he makes them new, makes them whole, gives them life that cannot be found in this life. And that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Um, if you have a Bible, you can go to Colossians chapter 2. That's where I'm going to be this morning. I'm going to use that to, to preach somewhat on baptism but also just look at the sweet truths of the gospel that hold us all secure in the Lord and his presence. Yeah, I'm aware in this a room this size, you might be like me 23 years ago. Like you come in here and you're like, I, don't, I feel like a fish out of water. I don't know how I ended up here. I came with a friend. I'm just trying to be nice, whatever. 23 years ago, I came to faith. Um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. As I sit here at the, the end of an aisle, like I'm reminded of my own story, there was consecutive weeks where the pastor just commended anyone who wanted to believe in Jesus to come down up front, and one of these old guys off on the side will pray with you, and I was like, I am not going to do that. And, but one particular Sunday, God just forced my hand and brought me to saving faith, and, and I, as well as these individuals here now, I'm an adopted child of God. And so if you're here this morning, um, just know that we're grateful that you're here. Maybe you've never been to church before. Maybe you've been all your life. Maybe you've been wayward and you just have turned your back on the things of God or in God himself. And I'm thankful that you're here. And I pray that you be stirred to consider the claims of Christ maybe in a new way, maybe for the first time. 
And you'd be reminded, maybe just the principal thing you'd be reminded is that every single person in this room needs the saving work of Jesus Christ. There's no one in this space, there's no one on this planet that somehow has a life that commends them in the sight of God. That somehow, based on their work, has merited a place at God's table and in his family. It's only by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, by which we get to be a part of the family of God. And so in Colossians chapter 2, some of what we'll see is we'll just see the the brilliance of Jesus. I want to read chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Why don't you just go there with me? If you don't have a Bible, you can look up on the TVs. You can look on your phone. I'll just trust you're not on Twitter. Okay, Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. It says this. It says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily or in bodily form. And you, Christians, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, that is, raised Jesus from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. In verse 9, it says, For in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily or in bodily form. So everything that can be attributed to God is true of Jesus. That's the summation of what that statement says. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of the nature of God. And you can look in your Bibles at John 1 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. They're kind of, in a way, like a trinity of passages that deal with the divinity of Jesus. And so Jesus himself very clearly said that he was the one who alone was one with the Father. So in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So if you're trying to figure out what God is like, you don't have to look any further than to look at Jesus. The glory of God radiates from him in his character and in his person that he is the fullness of God in bodily form. If you're looking for life, you don't have to look any further than Jesus. So back in 1980, there was a famous song. It's been sung by multiple people, a country song, I think it was, Johnny Lee, looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in all the wrong faces. Some of you want to sing it right now. But, that's it. but the story of mankind is this. Every single one of us is looking for life in all the wrong places. That is the journey of mankind from the beginning. Like we try to find life in meaning in places where it ultimately cannot be found. We try to squeeze life out of places where only death is promised. And so we quite literally are looking for life in all the wrong places. And so some of what we see in this passage is not just the fact that Jesus is God, But in Christ we find enduring life, that we are filled in him. We're filled in Christ. We're completely filled with his life. 
food that endures to eternal life and not food that perishes. In John chapter 6, one of the ways that Jesus described himself was the bread of life. So if you can picture, just I'll take you on a journey just for a second. There was the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people with a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish. And from that moment, there was people that would follow Jesus around. They crossed the sea to get to him. And when they find him, they're like, hey, where were you? It's like, hey, you've come because you saw a miracle. You've come to, to get bread from me again. But he, he confronts them. He says, but don't labor for food that perishes. Like, go looking for the food that endures. Then he goes on to talk about the fact that he is the bread of life. Because their initial reaction is something like this. Like, that sounds really good. Like, food that doesn't perish. Like, who can find that? And so they say, sir, always give us this food. And some of us have responded that way, maybe to the message of the gospel that's been perverted maybe in the world. That somehow we think that there's just temporal things we can get from God. Health, wealth, prosperity, right? Little Jesus every day keeps the devil away. But Jesus says, I want you to labor for food that endures. It's beyond this life. Don't just try to satisfy temporary hunger in this world, somehow even thinking you might get the benefit from me of just having your temporary aches met in this life, but labor for the food that endures. And he goes on to say this, I am the bread of life. Like I'm, I'm what you're looking for. You've been looking for life in all the wrong places and it's found in me. Like I'm the bread of life and he who eats of me will never be hungry again and you drink from me, you'll never be thirsty again. Come to me and find the satisfaction that your soul so longs for. So maybe for some of us this morning, I pray that what you'll find is that you just, you realize that there is a hunger. It's not a hunger like you need some food, but there's, a, there's an emptiness that you feel. There's a void present. And you feel much like those people did when they were confronted with the fact that they were longing for food. And maybe today God wants to open your eyes to the fact that you've never come to him and been satisfied. You're just chasing, like endlessly chasing the wind, trying to find some meal that's going to satisfy your hunger. I just hear from me, as just a, a broken man that's been redeemed by grace. And for 21 years, I did the same thing. Chasing everything the world tells you is going to satisfy your hunger. Steady looking for life in all the wrong places. Find it in him. That not just does the fullness of deity dwell in him bodily, but you can be filled. And if you're a Christian, you are filled in him. The life fully and completely is found in him. You're filled with the life of Christ, but not only that, you're submitted to the rule of Christ. Look back at the text. That he's the head of all rule and authority. You've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So we're filled with the life of Christ, but submitted to the rule of Christ. Not just subscribers occasionally benefiting from his content, but we're subjects of his as the ruler, the head of all ruler and authority. Not just fans, but followers in the truest form. Not those who just like Jesus from a distance with like a distant thumbs up. 
but we live for him. And maybe for some of us too, there's, there's a way in which we can be really familiar with Jesus. Like in a church context, I think all of us, to some degree, we can be really familiar with Jesus and what he says, but we've never truly surrendered to him. And Jesus is not interested in you just being merely familiar with him. He wants you, he deserves for you to be surrendered to him. He's the head of all rule and authority. He's the head of every single small case R rule. Every single small case A authority falls under his rule and reign. So as those who've been filled with the life of Christ, we are to be submitted to him as our ruler. There's no other ruler worthy of submission, no other master worthy of allegiance. In verse 11, it says, In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. This sounds super weird. I get it. If you haven't been around church, you're like, what? Why are we talking about circumcision all of a sudden? And so circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of the people of God. So men would be circumcised as a sign of entering into the, this covenant family, namely the nation of Israel. And so the New Testament basically explains that there's now for the Christian, having been made a part of the family of God by faith, there's actually like a spiritual circumcision that takes place of the, of the human heart. Not by hands to the body physically, but to the heart. And there's a putting off of part of us, namely this old self, this old man that was not subject to the rule of God. But in Christ, in him, we're also circumcised with this circumcision made without hands. And in Christ, we put off and permanently bury an old way of life. In Colossians chapter 3, if you just look to your right, if you're in your Bibles, in verse 3 and then 5 and 10, it says, for you have died. It's a common theme. In verse 3, and then in verse 5, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. A family, like, you've heard this from me before. If you're a professing Christian in this room, one of the things we have to be reminded of as we come into this place, we see a text like this, is it's your profession of faith in Jesus Christ says something much more than just something about you. It says something about the one that you profess to believe in. And central to our lives being congruent with our profession is what we're looking at right here. There's a putting off. There's an old way of life. There's an old manner of life. There's an old uniform that quite literally we have taken off in exchange for another one. That in Jesus Christ, he gives us a new manner of life, new conduct consistent with our calling. And most of us have lived long enough to see just the tragedy and the destruction that happens when you see hypocrisy in professing Christians whose lives don't bear out that they're any different from the world. Because who would want to believe in a Jesus that leaves someone the same? But when the God of the Bible transforms you by his grace and by his mercy, he does not leave you the same. 
It progressively over time, you look more and more like Christ. Progressively over time, you want to please him more and more. Imperfectly along the way, but the trajectory of your life is one that says, I want to please him. I labor by the grace of God to please him with my life. So we've experienced this spiritual circumcision, and we speak in the past tense about a former manner of life. That's the old me. I've died. I once walked. I was living in these ways and in these things. Romans chapter 6, we who died to sin, we were buried. Our old self was crucified. One who has died has been set free from sin. The picture is everywhere. There's an old way of life that for the Christian has died. Now, challenge is those old clothes, as I've said in the past, they can be a little sticky, even comfortable if we're not careful. Because for some of us, we walked in them for so long, like putting them away feels unfamiliar, right? We just, so we want to even keep the clothes that we once wore because they just happen to be familiar to us. So there's, a, there's an objective truth that we have died to sin. But there's this, now this call that day by day we are called to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Like you are dead, but put to death the deeds of the flesh. There's a working out of that call. You are this, now be this. And Kevin DeYoung in his book, A Hole in, Your, in, Our, in Our Holiness, talks about just be who you are. You could sum up this truth kind of in that way. Be, like walk in who you are. You are this way in Christ, so live it out by the grace of God. I no longer walk in sin, but I keep on and on putting it away. Now, if we live long enough, we begin to see all sorts of fashions come back, don't we? Just short list, just for a second. Just humor me for a second. Like shoulder pads, ladies, really? That's what we're going back to, shoulder pads from the 80s? Leg warmers? And like young guys, like short shorts for men, like is that what we're doing? How long are we going to do that? Bell-bottom jeans are back, y'all, hey. Scrunchies? And when those started coming back in our house, I was like, really, scrunchies are making a comeback? Is this a real thing? But you live long enough, you realize like everything would just, it's just going to get recycled. At some point, just hold on to those clothes. You'll be able to wear them like 20 years from now. People be like, hey, that's awesome. Like, I know I had it in my closet for like 20 years, and it's back, and I didn't have to pay a dime for it, right? But just like fashion, our old self keeps trying to get back on the scene as if it belongs, but you look at a number of fashions, there's probably some fashions you look at, you're like, you know what, that should not come back. That's exactly how we should feel when we, when we see, when we feel the flesh, this old manner of life creeping back in. You're like, you know what, that, does, that doesn't belong. That shouldn't be coming back. Why? Because you've been crucified with Christ. There's an old manner of life that's no longer you. You know, the miracle of it all is that not only is it just the fact that you have a new identity, you have a new power to say no to things that you never could have said no to, to before. How? Because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within his people to give life to our mortal bodies. 
So you can quite literally, tomorrow morning, the very thing that you feel stuck in today, look that sin straight in the face, say, you are not the ruler of me anymore. Jesus Christ reigns in my life. He commands my steps. That's the picture in the Bible. It's so freeing. But so often, and we see this in ministries, so often we're stuck in the same patterns of sin as if we have no choice. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. But because we've not only died, but we've come alive with Jesus as well. One of the things you see later on in chapter 2 in Colossians, this church is dealing with all sorts of things, but one of the things that, that there, there's false teachers coming in saying you've got to have this special knowledge in order to, to achieve rightness with God or even become God. There's just like hyper-religion is kind of on the scene. And so, so Paul deals with these different layers in chapter 2, and I won't read it just for the sake of time, but let me just summarize it in this way. We aren't made new by mere intellectual pursuit or special knowledge. We're not made right or made new by mere intellectual pursuit or special knowledge. We are not made new by extreme self-discipline or by merely avoiding indulgence. We aren't made new by adhering to a set of rules. You and I are not made new or made part of the family of God by man-made religion. And to sum it up in this way, here's what I'd say. We don't need regulations. We don't need religion. We need resurrection. That's because we're dead, we need to become alive. And so we're not made new by regulations or by religious adherence or by saying no long enough to certain indulgences of the flesh, but we're made new because Jesus is alive and he's made us alive. We need resurrection. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him, reunited with him in his death, united with him in his resurrection. You're raised with him through, the faith, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Through faith in the resurrected Jesus, the Christian is alive inwardly, spiritually. Old things have passed. New things have come. Praise be to God. We can be different and live lives consistent with a God who is different. We've talked about it in the book of 1 Peter. We're preaching through. We serve a God who is different, transcendent, holy. And he saves people and he calls them to be the same, different, and holy in this world to say something about his power, to raise dead people to life. And the supernatural change isn't brought about by our own effort or intelligence, but by faith, trusting in and resting in Jesus' sufficient work for us. And just as we're united with him in his death through faith, we're united with him in his life. When Jesus came out of the grave, he never returned. The death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't handle him. He was raised to walk in new forever life. Now, some, some of you this morning like need to hear this again and again from my lips as your friend, as your brother, and as one of the pastors here. You have been given new life in Jesus. He has made you new. Jesus came out of the grave never to return. So why do you keep strolling back in there as if it's where you belong? That Jesus is forever alive. 
And he's infused his people with forever life. Not just eternal life, but life for today. He's left us here with a job to do. And central to our identity as those doing that job, making him known, is that our lives bear testimony to the fact that he's alive. He makes a difference in human beings' lives. And we're alive from the grave. We're peculiar people. Like, what is the source of this life? It's Jesus. He's alive and he's alive in me. If you're a Christian in this room, he's alive in you. That's your identity. And so now walk as one alive from the dead. You've come out of your grave, never to return. You've been raised with him to walk in newness of life. In verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The bad news in the Bible is that apart from Christ, what defines us and our relationship with God is death and alienation. We are, we are dead in our sins. Not just in bad shape, we are spiritually are dead. And we're from him. We're alienated from him. We're not part of his family. We are quite literally foreigners and aliens to the family of God. Every single one of us have broken God's law. We are by nature children of wrath, what Ephesians 2 talks about. All of our work in the flesh has earned us the wages of death. As you think about the Bible, particularly a lot of us are familiar, even if you're not around church a lot, with the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. There weren't just Ten Commandments. There's a whole lot of laws, but let's just think about the Ten for a second. Every single one of us, we're all in this together right at this moment. It's a little bit like this. As we look at our lives, like every single commandment, all the Ten, one through Ten, it's like they're individual witnesses. And as as, as we stand before God, every single one of them raises their hand and says, yeah, he, he broke me. And in procession, all the other ten are like, yeah, he broke me too. Like, she broke me too. To the number. We've all broken God's law. And so we're, we're dead in our relationship to God. In these sins, they overwhelm us. And every single one of us, as a result, stand justly condemned before God. That's the bad news. But here's the picture, the peculiar picture in the Bible is that it's not your effort to turn yourself around that's going to make you right with God. There's not some degree of good that you have to undertake or achieve to overcome all your bad. You can never do it. But the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus lived the perfect life you could live. In his life, he obeyed fully the law of God that you and I could never obey and haven't obeyed. And so it's something like this. So when Jesus died, if you can imagine this, just every ounce of us breaking the law, maybe it's something like this. Every drop of his blood, every ounce of sweat as he carried the cross, every feeling of pain as he was whipped, with every tear of his skin as he was whipped, as the nails went through his hands and his feet, as he suffocated under his own weight on the cross, And as he forced out with the little breath that he had, words of forgiveness and completion, he was canceling your debt. 
Every single movement and all of that, all of the pain and anguish, all of his work unto the cross, every single movement was done that your debt might be canceled. You have this list of debts before God that you can never overcome. And Jesus, as he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. I've done the work that you can never do. Now trust in me. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest from your works. Trust in my work for you. And all those things, he was canceling our debt. Jesus was extinguishing the legal demands rightfully held against you, nailing them to the cross. And let me just address two quick barriers before I finish up. It's likely that somebody in this room hears this offer, maybe you've internalized it enough to be like, this is really good news. I've never heard it this way. I always thought I had to somehow measure up my personal effort. But some of you, maybe one person even, is thinking like, I'm just way too far gone. Like, Matt, you don't know. You just don't know what I've done or where I've been. You're right, I don't. But the song we sang earlier, His Mercy is More, there's this sweet picture in the Bible that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. The judgment that you and I deserve, the mercy of God is more. Where, the, where our sin abounds, it would seek to overshadow and overtake us. The, the grace of God is still more. And Paul, the most famous Christian of all time, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, he said, I'm the foremost of sinners. He went from being a terrorist to being an evangelist. And you're telling me your sin is too great? No, I just think your view of God is too small. Your view of grace is not aligned with what the Bible says. And you can reject that even today. But you're going to go on pressing on into places where you're trying to find lasting life and it will never be found. Trust in Jesus. Trust in his grace. See his mercy is more. Today, believe in him. There's no one too far off, no one too far gone. You don't have to be perfect. You just need only be broken. Maybe for some of us, it's a fear of exposure. There's nobody likes to be exposed, right? Even as we turn the lights up brighter, there's this feeling of like, oh my goodness, people are looking at me. One of the miracles in the Bible in our relationship with God, Jesus, is that our our point of exposure before God. If Jesus is the light of the world, and make no mistake about it, he will expose us. But he's not surprised by anything. He knows it's there. But the miracle of the gospel is this, is that Jesus simultaneously exposes and heals. Exposes us for everything that's wrong about us. But in that moment, if we're broken and surrendered before him, that very same moment will be the moment of greatest healing in life. Let him give you life. Growth never happens in the darkness. It only happens when you come into the light. Maybe as believers, we need to hear that as well. There's no, there's no life without the light. It will expose, but it also heals. Jesus' light is eternally revealing, but it's also life-giving. And some of you may have a relationship where you feel like you can be fully, fully known and yet by some miracle still fully loved. 
We see shades of that in human relationships. I feel like I was thinking about my wife this morning. I feel that with Haley. I feel that with her because of the grace of God in her life. And we love because we've been loved. But what a feeling to know that you're known in all of your mess, all the brokenness, all the shattered pieces. Someone says, I know everything about you, but I love you still. I accept you, not because of the fact you're cleaned up. I'm not asking you to get better. I'm asking you to come to me and trust in me. And that's the life that we get in Jesus. And the call is to come and die that you might live. Come and eat and be hungry no more. Come and drink and thirst no more. Come out of the darkness and let the life-giving light of Jesus shine upon you. And I pray that that would be your heart this morning. As I close off, I want to share just a couple pieces about baptism. And I'll invite Grace up in a minute. She's going to share her story with you. But for for us in this room, like some of you this morning, one of the things I think God wants to do is maybe he's going to have you get baptized. Let me just explain just in real brief order a few bullet points about baptism. Baptism doesn't save you, in case I wasn't clear in the previous 30 minutes of my sermon. Baptism doesn't make you right with God. We say it this way, like baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. Something that's already happened in the heart or the soul of a believer is expressed through baptism, water baptism. So we're united with, with Jesus. So this picture is, as, the, as a person, as grace goes into the water, it's like Jesus going into the tomb. She's dying to an old way of life, symbolically. And as she comes out, and we'll give the rules for this in a moment, because We'll yell now, walk in newness of life. Because as she comes out of the water, that's the picture as well, is that just like Jesus came out of the grave, resurrected, she now walks in resurrection life. But baptism doesn't save, it's just merely a symbol. It's one of only two ordinances commanded by God for the church. So who should get baptized? Anyone who's trusted in Jesus Christ to save them should be baptized. And some of the goal this morning is that you'd understand baptism enough to where you wouldn't have some sort of excuse not to be baptized. If you're a Christian, you've never been baptized, consider yourself informed. Now it's just an issue of obedience. Okay, fair enough? Some of you, maybe you need to hear that this morning. Who should get baptized? Anyone who's trusted in Jesus? Let me deal with a couple different questions here. Some of, some of us were baptized before we really understood what was happening. I'm not going to get into baptism and sort of, I'm not going to theologically try to get into that. You can see me later if you want to have that discussion. But for some of you, you may look back on an, a baptism before you really had placed your faith in Jesus. You're like, this, it's not what we would consider believer's baptism. And you need, you need to consider getting baptized to profess your faith, to unite your with this symbol of your faith and get baptized. And if you have questions about that, come and see us. We'd love to encourage you in that journey. And, and many of you have kids. This is another layer to this as well. This is complex. So there's a way in which I was talking to one of my daughters, Hope, the other day about this because some of my daughters having been baptized earlier in life and journeyed in, through enough life now, they feel the grace of God more deeply now than they did when they were nine. Understand? Understandable, right? There's just more life lived and the grace of God just more clear as we struggle with our own sin and we journey through more time on this planet. But hear this real clearly. The, the, the step of faith under baptism is not based on maturity but on profession. 
But this is some of what makes it so hard. Because as, as you have children who profess faith, there's a temptation to, to see that little seedling of faith and push it down and say, why don't you come back when you're a little bit more complex? That's one temptation. The other one is just to embrace it too quickly and to not have any evidence that that profession is, has even just a little, the most minute sense of fruit or display of fruit in their lives. And so here's my encouragement. Pray. Seek counsel, pray, and then process through with your kids. Stay away from them getting baptized after their friend gets baptized. Don't do it like the week after. So we've seen that before too. It's like kids love, like, hey, my friend got baptized. Why not me too, right? So stay away from that. But pray and process. We, um, there's a devotional that we sent out. It's probably a couple years ago maybe. Um, it's back on the table. I think there's maybe 20 of them. Uh, so for you parents, if you have a, a kiddo who wants to process through baptism, I use that as like a, f- a five-day devotion. Kind of walks through baptism, provides some discussion points. If you have questions for us, in large measure as pastors, we're going to trust you as parents to have a sense for where your kids are. We don't have like a, an age like 11 or 12 or whatever whereby kids can get baptized. But we want you to be discerning and be prayerful and then be patient. There's no reason to rush, but don't unnecessarily stifle their faith. When should baptism take place? Right after you come to faith. You see this famously in Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. He comes to faith, reading the word of God. Philip comes alongside him. He's like, hey, look, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And that's the kind of eagerness that should be present in the heart of believers. So when should be right away? And then how we completely immerse because scripturally, we feel like even linguistically, like the, the words for sprinkle are never used in baptism passages in the New Testament. So we fully immerse people. You'll see that with Grace. She'll go all the way underwater. That's why she's holding her nose. She's going all the way in. And why should you get baptized? That's where I'll finish. It's an issue of obedience. It's also a, a moment of announcement. I was joking with Grace a couple of weeks ago. There's only a few moments in your life where you have a captive audience. Uh, one is when you get married. Usually everybody's there. They're going to honor you. You can say just about anything because they're there to celebrate you. One is your baptism. And the other is when you're gone. You're dead. So there's not many moments where you can stand up and just freely proclaim what God has done in your life and people will take it in and absorb it. So there's an announcement. There's also an identification. So part of what, what's significant about baptism is that you're not just identifying with Christ, but with his people. So as Grace gets up here in just a moment, she's going to look out on you. She's going to be really nervous. There's a lot of people in here. But it's like a big living room. It's like, for those of you who are part of this church family, especially, like we are family members here to celebrate the birth of a new daughter. There's new life. And so as, as we do baptisms and the significance of doing them in here in this space together is that there's a way in which we identify our lives not just with the work of Jesus, but with the people of Jesus. There's an entering into that family, identification with the family of God. There's a beckoning for the family of God to help, help me in my faith as I try to walk with Jesus. I need you to help me in that process. And so those are a few things that I would share. If you're curious about baptism, you, want, you have some more questions, we did order. I think there's 20 on the back table. It's a booklet called Why. Is it Why or Should I Get Baptized? I think it's Why Should I Get Baptized? Um, you can pick one of those up. Don't if you're just a reader, like a book nerd, don't grab that. Order your own. It's not for you. Uh, those are for those who are legitimately considering should I be baptized. But grab one of those, and uh, there's, I think there's 20 on the back table.
All right, with that said, let me pray, and I'll invite uh, Grace to come up in a second. Uh, God, we, uh, we thank you for your work um, through Jesus. Uh, God the Father, we thank you that you sent your Son uh, so that he would live a perfect life that we could never live and die in our place. And we thank you that he is alive and always praying for us as your people. God, would you shatter the hardness of any human heart in this room that's yet to turn to you and surrender. Supernaturally work. I don't have the words nor the personality or energy to, to change a human heart, but you can and you do, and I pray that you would. We love you. Thank you for new life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.